do the current diagnostic criteria for COPD lead to overdiagnosis and misdiagnosis? An analysis article in the BMJ looks at the gold diagnostic criteria for COPD and outlines how these criteria can lead to overdiagnosis of COPD in older men and mask the possibility of heart disease, as well as possibly underdiagnosing COPD in younger women. I'm Navjoit Larder, analysis editor, and I'm joined now by the authors of the review. Martin Miller, an Honorary Professor of Medicine at the University of Birmingham, and Mark Levy, a general practitioner with a long-standing interest in respiratory disease based in London. Hello, Martin. Hi, Navjoy. And hello, Mark. Hello, Navjoy. Hi, thanks so much for joining us. Um, Now, just to start with, can you give us some of the background here? Um, How is COPD diagnosed and how are the criteria used? I think in the past, we're going back quite a number of years, the diagnosis was rather loose in people with smoking history and then were wheezing and it was thought they would have COPD. And then there was a major improvement in the diagnosis by stating that you must have evidence that they've got what we call airflow limitation. And this is diagnosed from quite a simple test of how fast you can blow the air out of your lungs. And the accepted standard for saying whether this test was abnormal used what we call lower limits of normal, which are defined by age and sex-specific normal values. And then there was a big change in 2001 where the Global Obstructive Lung Disease Group, GOLD, came out with a different definition of what was going to be abnormal, saying it was just a fixed number. And this ignored the age and sex-specific differences in the test, which we have then argued lead to problems with misdiagnosis, overdiagnosis, and underdiagnosis. Okay. Um, And I think you mentioned in the article that NICE, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, have now adopted those diagnostic criteria, the gold criteria. Um, What was the impetus then to change? Well, I think it was that it was felt that using low limits of normal, which is true for many, many tests that clinicians use to diagnose all manner of diseases, was going to be too complicated to implement widely. And so they wanted to simplify things. Whereas we would argue that it isn't terribly difficult or complicated, and most of the instruments with which you record this lung function test will tell you whether it's above or below the low limits of normal. But it was for simplicity, I think, that it was introduced. Okay. And was there anything about the clinical nature of the disease that people felt it was important to identify more of it? Yes, it was felt that it was underdiagnosed and that there were a lot of people who were being left and that if you intervened principally by encouraging smoking cessation or in those people who may have an occupational cause for it changing your work that you could prevent a disease from progressing and leading to a lot of morbidity and increased mortality later on. Okay well let's um, look at the effects of changing the criteria. Um, how, how has it affect the, affected the prevalence of COPD? Well, there are quite a large number of studies now which show that the two different criteria give you very different prevalences, so that with the gold criteria, you'll get a much higher prevalence, and particularly in an older age group. And using the lower limits of normal, it's a lower prevalence. And then when you look at the difference, the people that the gold would say have the disease, but lower limits of normal say are 
are actually normal. Uh, those people don't appear to have the usual risks associated with COPD, but do have increased risk of heart disease. Right. So just to pick up on that, is that does that mean that possibly the the people that we we thought we might be missing with lower limits of normal, uh, perhaps not not all of those actually have COPD according to gold diagnostic criteria. Well, I think the worry is that um, the people who we would say are being falsely diagnosed as COPD by the gold criteria are presenting breathless, undertake this test, which we would say is normal, but gold says abnormal, and you then attract the diagnostic label of COPD, and the thinking process behind the diagnosis stops, whereas in fact, a lot of these people in fact have a primary disease of heart disease, and so you're missing an opportunity for early intervention in heart disease by mislabeling them as COPD. And Mark, I know you mentioned something about the, the label of, of COPD as well. Yes, well, from a primary care perspective, there's two issues I'd like to add in. One is um, using this fixed cutoff in COPD, as Martin says, isn't really something we do in primary care. For example, if we said that the, the um, lower and upper limits for diagnosing anemia would be a haemoglobin of between 11 and 15. And we came out and said that everybody who's above 13 was normal, everybody below 13 was abnormal. It just puts this whole thing into perspective. So family doctors are quite used to using lower and upper limits of normal to make diagnoses and to define normality and abnormality. Now, once a diagnosis has been made of COPD, Primary care doctors and nurses in primary care looking after patients will tend to stick with that diagnosis without questioning it. And as a result, medication will be increased and the patient continues to suffer from symptoms, so medication might be increased further. And the point Martin makes about undiagnosed cardiac disease or heart disease is very important. Because if someone has heart disease and you're treating them for COPD with drugs that could aggravate heart disease, then it compounds the problem. Some of those drugs can actually be harmful in that setting. Yeah, yeah, anticholinergic drugs can be harmful. Okay. Are there any other harms that might result um, or that have resulted um, because of this change in criteria? I mean, overdiagnosis is one of the, the points you make in the article. Well, a major concern is the patients who may have heart disease as their primary disease uh, receive incorrect treatment, which may be harmful and don't get the right treatment. So it's interesting that in some major studies, people who Gold would say had mild COPD, uh, curiously had a very high early mortality from cardiovascular disease. And these were people who hadn't smoked as much as those in the worst group who had less heart disease. And so that again points to the possibility that they did have heart disease as the primary diagnosis. And by missing that early intervention, you have a sort of unexpected mortality. And the other problem is in relation to research, where a lot of the studies are showing that the misdiagnosis group may be as many as sort of 25% to 33% of all the people you think have COPD by gold don't. And you're adding noise to any studies if you're trying to look at interventions because you've diluted the signal that you're looking for. And so a lot of research studies in the future, if you honed in on those with true disease, are much more likely to get 
significant outcomes identified than if you have this looser diagnosis, which is often incorrect. Okay. Um, and just looking at this from the other point of view, there may be some people who are listening who will say, well, actually, but you're you're at least flagging up that there are people with, with symptoms by using these goal criteria. And if there are interventions that may make a difference, could that be worthwhile? What would you say to those people? Well, uh, it's not flagging up the symptoms. Uh, patients have symptoms and it's up to you as the doctor to be inquiring about them and then identifying the correct diagnosis that answers it. And the, the problem here is that if you jump straight to this simple blowing test but use the wrong criteria for it, you may come out with the wrong diagnosis. And so you may be doing a lot of harm rather than benefit. The intervention on COPD of benefit are very marginal compared with the interventions of benefit on heart disease. Uh, and so you know, the focus must be in correcting that misdiagnosis, getting those heart disease patients on the right treatment for the maximum benefit. And then we can look at the strategies for COPD, which is smoking cessation, and then the improvements from other treatments are quite small compared with the improvements in heart disease. I can give you an example of a, a misdiagnosis that was made in primary care. Um, I work in a practice part-time now, and um, one of the locum doctors had referred an elderly patient to me with um, uh, uh, respiratory symptoms that had been ongoing for quite a long time. And this person was on three different inhaled medications for COPD, which had been diagnosed, and I was asked to give an opinion. And when I took a history and examined the patient and did this spirometry, she didn't seem to have COPD, and an echocardiogram confirmed that she actually had heart failure. So she had four months of treatment, on, um, or four months of inappropriate treatment, which um, could have been avoided, and her symptoms improved after she was put onto the right medication. Um, another example from the National Review of Asthma Deaths, 10% of people certified and classified by the Office of National Statistics as having died from asthma had no evidence whatsoever that they had asthma. And many of the consultants and GPs that we wrote to for information on those people who died wrote back and said, no, this person actually has COPD, they didn't have asthma. Now, when we looked in detail at the records, a lot of those people had chronic asthma, which had later developed into fixed airflow obstruction on spirometry testing, and so the treatment was changed because there's pressure on GPs not to prescribe inhaled steroids for people with, uh, with CO mild, moderate COPD. So what happens is the inhaled steroids are stopped and people die from acute asthma. So the problems work both ways. There seems to be a sort of wider issue that is at play that we often talk about when we talk about kind of over-diagnosis, over-treatment, which is of um, doctors and this kind of pressure to diagnose, uh, pressure to test, and then kind of... Um, almost trusting test results more than they trust their own clinical judgment. Would you say that that's an issue here? Well, the background was that COPD was all about clinical judgment. And uh, very sensibly, we now recognize you must get evidence they've got airflow obstruction because just by looking and talking at a patient, you can't tell whether that's true. And now we're discussing the difference between accepted what we call low limits of normal, which are defined statistically and follow all the statistical principles that every domain of science follows, versus a, a fixed cutoff, 
which came from the evidence of one paper in the face of 50 more or others that showed you know, the fixed cutoff wasn't right. Uh, and that's the basis for the argument. So I don't think clinical judgment on its own is satisfactory. You have to be able to do this test, uh, but you need to use the right limits to define whether the result in your patient is unusual for them. Okay. I think I understand what you what you were referring to. I think that having made the diagnosis, um, doctors will often stick to that diagnosis and prescribe, assuming that the diagnosis is correct. And I, I think what we're trying to do in this paper is to get people to think more carefully about the diagnosis and to apply more rigorous criteria when deciding that somebody does or doesn't have COPD. And Mark, did you mention also that they're in um, primary care, the, how easy is it to do these tests? Well, that's another story. Um, I also did a paper together with uh, other people um, about five years ago on the quality of spirometry in primary care. Um, th there's a major problem <coughs> where people do spirometry without adequate training because you can diagnose all sorts of other conditions, um, uh, you know, in particular restrictive airflow obstruction, diseases that have restrictive airflow obstruction, if you don't do the correct um, uh, maneuver and don't do the test properly. So there are a lot of spirometers in primary care, but as far as I'm aware, there are very few people in primary care who have been adequately trained to do spirometry. And so if GPs are doing spirometry, first of all, they should have a spirometer that is one of the recommended ones, not um, these little meters that just give a number. You want a, a spirometer that will give a tracing that you can see as the patient is doing the test and you can assess the quality. And then you need to be able to interpret the results. Now, the modern spirometers will give you the lower limit of normal if you set it to do so. You've, you've got to program the, the uh, spirometer to do so, and it's not rocket science. You just tick a box and you get the lower limit of normal. You put the age and the gender and the ethnicity of the patient in, and then you get a much more reliable result than just simply drawing a line across the 70% mark. Mm. I know in the practice um, where I work, I'm a GP as well, um, the sort of reason for getting a spirometer was so that to to satisfy a kind of requirement of quaff really and and every, you know without much training you are kind of expected when you're seeing someone with COPD to just sort of give them a spirometer without even if you've not really been trained to use it and um, so that seems an issue too. Um, in the article you also talk about underdiagnosis being an issue um, with a particular population of patients can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, this is uh, slightly complicated, but uh, to do with the differences between men and women with this number and with age, it declines with age, and in women generally overall the result is slightly higher. The differences between the two criteria mean that in an older age group you overdiagnose it in men, but in a younger age group you tend to miss women who truly have got airflow obstruction, but the gold criteria suggests otherwise. And these are people who have got a lot to gain by establishing the diagnosis early in terms of intervention and prevention. So uh, it would seem that should be an issue to be addressed as well, to be sure that we, we don't miss people who truly have this disease. Okay. 
Um, so you've outlined a number of issues with these criteria. Um, what, in your opinion, needs to happen now? Well, clinicians need to be using the correct diagnosis. And so within hospital practice, you're using laboratories which have to follow the lower limits of normal guidelines, which are those stated by the European and American thoracic societies. So those tests will come out defining by lower limits of normal. In primary care is where we have the, the problem with the diagnosis and, and using different criteria. And I think if you are making the diagnosis, it's a good idea to re-establish that by repeating the spirometry. So if there were concerns about the quality of the spirometry in those that you think have the disease, reaffirming it by getting it done through a validated laboratory is one option to be sure because the diagnosis is an important one. It carries in long term a high mortality, but not in the short term. Uh, and so you shouldn't falsely give this diagnosis to somebody um, unless you're certain on the evidence. And there are ways, as I've described, of doing that. Okay. So there's um, you know, an issue about having sufficient evidence to be making very bold statements that affect the practice of people mm. uh, very widely. Mm. And that evidence wasn't available when this statement came out about using this fixed ratio. And as a principle of science, you should be out to ask questions. Is it valid? Does it give you the right patience? And is it helpful? And there was a long delay before we were able to get the evidence in to show the problems that we're now highlighting in this paper. And I think people looking back would maybe a bit surprised by that. And you mentioned that it was just on the basis of one one study that this um, this criteria change happened. Is that right? Yes, there's one paper which was looking at normal values in the subjects. And in the women, they showed that this lung function test declined with age, as all the other studies have found. But in the men, it appeared to be that a, a 0.7 would identify those people who've got an abnormal result. But they hadn't really sampled the older age group adequately if you look at the data and so it wouldn't be reliable in that sense and it's against more than 50 other papers which show it declines with age so really we should have demanded more evidence before following such a guideline great well thanks so much to both of you um, you've been listening to martin miller and mark levi and their analysis article chronic obstructive pulmonary disease misdiagnosis versus misdiagnosis is now available on the bmj.com.